Have you ever, have you ever been, uh, have you ever been in trouble? Kids, have you been in trouble? Have you had, yeah, I see some nods. Have you, have you had somebody tell on you and you got caught and you didn't like it? Once when I was littler than I am now, considerably so, I, I, I had a problem of taking things. And I went into a store and I took something, and, and, I, and I, I don't know if I should tell you this because I, we might have a different pastor next week, but I, 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 I took something and I put it in my pocket. And I had money, I could have paid for it, but I didn't pay for it. And I tried to walk out of the store. And that's not a good thing, is it? And somebody else saw me do that thing and knew that it wasn't a good thing. And he, he, he came after me and he stopped me and I bled, I, I, I pled with him. I tried to, to plead that couldn't I, couldn't I just pay for it? No, he wouldn't let me get away with it. He wouldn't let me wiggle out of it. I had to face those consequences for what I did that was wrong. He held me accountable for my actions. He, I, had, I, I, I was going to... I was going to be in trouble for what I had done, put it in kids' terms. And I remembered I, I ended up having to do some, uh, I had to go before a Jew, I was a juvenile, I was a young teen, I think, maybe a preteen, young teen, and I, and I had to go before this officer of the court, I didn't have to go to court itself, they, they put me on a different track, maybe this kid could be okay and make something of his life still, he might not be a hardened criminal just yet, and, and, uh, but I had to do five hours of community service. And I did that little town of Arlington where I had done this horrible deed. And, and I, I did my five hours of community service at the wastewater, understand sewage, treatment <laughs> plant. Well, the supervisor there who I did my community service with was actually a very gracious man. He made me work. I had to work because of what I had done. I was in trouble. And yet he... he he did it graciously, and along with weeding the flower beds and doing work and actually getting my hands in the dirt and dirty, he also took me along with him in the city truck, and we had to go from there out to the airport where the dog pound was and do something. And I think he made it up just so he could take me somewhere and call that part of the work. And he treated me very graciously. He cared about me, but also wanted me to understand that there were consequences for the wrong that I had done. I was held accountable. But you know, since that time, since that getting caught and being accountable for it, you're probably glad to hear this. I don't walk into stores and take things that I don't pay for anymore. I didn't ever since that time when not only did I get caught, but I was held accountable for it. We have a tendency around us today that we don't want to hold, we don't necessarily want to be held accountable ourselves, but we are really hesitant in our present day and age to hold others accountable. There is, there is a swirling uncertainty in our culture about even what's right and what's wrong. There are lies that our culture believes about what's right and what's wrong and, what's, and judging and accountability. There are lies that Christians believe. I, I would suggest that there are some lies that you might be believing. Lies that we need to confront. Lies that the Word of God confronts us with. Those three lies, if I were to, if I were to summarize them, would be live and let live. First of all, the lies you might be believing, the first lie would be live and let live. Hey, who am I to judge? Just let people do what they want to do. 
you know, I, I don't, I'm not supposed to judge somebody else, so live and let live, right? How about, I've got my rights. You know, I, 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 I was wronged here. I, 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 can put, I can squeeze that person. Yeah, they should be held accountable because I've got my rights. And, well, you only live once. You only live once. What does that imply? You only live once, so do what you want. Do what's fun. If you only live once, then go ahead and live, right? Enjoy good things because you only live once. And those sound good because there's something true in them. And yet there's something potentially very wrong in them as well. And that's what I want to talk about today. There's, there's two chapters that I want to survey through in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 6. And in these two chapters, we're going to confront these three lies. Lies that we might be believing. That's the danger of them. The first of those three lies is, as I said, live and let live. That, that lie of tolerance, that, this is the lie of acceptance. This is the lie of, sure, everything's fine. I've got nothing to say about others. I just need to mind my own business. Doesn't the Bible say, judge not lest you be judged? Who am I to judge other people? So, so live and let live. And yet, tolerance... Tolerance of sin denies the gospel. Why? Because the gospel itself tells us that because of sin, our Savior died. And because our Savior died and, and rose again, that we rise with Him to live in new life. And therefore, for the believer, for the, for the one whose trust is in the gospel, for the one who's been given new life in Christ to continue to tolerate sin, is the denial of that same gospel. I want to read chapter Five of First Corinthians. We'll, we'll do chapter 5 at once, then we'll look at the first half of chapter 6 and the second half of chapter 6. So First Corinthians chapter 5, if you're using a pew Bible, will be on page 954. 954, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. This is a scandalous episode within the life of Corinth. There's a, there's a, there's a particular sin that Paul addresses here, but don't get too comfortable thinking, well, okay, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not there. He's going to widen it out toward the end that there are many other things that would fit in this, many other things we might be more comfortable tolerating that he's going to put into the same company. It's actually reported among you, scandalously so, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now you think pagans, you think really bad people. No, pagans, in Paul's thinking here, are simply people in Corinth, their neighbors, their friends, who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Unbelievers. The unbelievers don't even do what's going on here. A man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present, and the, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover, lamb, is sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
and I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Isn't that interesting? He's not talking about people out there. He's talking about people in here. The, or, or not only merely sexually immoral people, but greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. If you're going to not associate with those kind of people, you'd have to isolate yourselves. We'd have to close the doors and pull up the drawbridge. We would have to isolate ourselves in a monastic, a monastery type of community. No, no, we're going to be in and of the world, but we should be different in and among the world. I'm writing to you not to associate, verse 11, with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? There is the limitation. What do I have to do with judging outsiders, those who are outside the church? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil one from among yourselves. Now, what is going on here? There's, there, there are several phrases, several aspects of that that I want to talk about. Hopefully that can put this together. First of all, he says, hand such a one over to Satan. What is that about? Put him outside. Treat him as an, as an unbeliever. It seems rather harsh. Put, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But did you catch the purpose there? So that his spirit might be saved. The purpose of this is spiritual restoration. Put him outside of the community of the Christians so that he will experience that separation, which is a consequence of his willful sin. Put him outside so that he'll experience separation, so that he'll long for what he has lost and hopefully be brought to repentance so that he can then be restored. We know from, from the book of 2 Corinthians in the, in the first couple of chapters that that's exactly what happened. He was restored, and Paul urges the church to be very gracious in receiving him back in. The purpose has been accomplished. But it's for spiritual restoration, first of all. That's the goal. Not our own self-righteousness. It's for spiritual restoration. It's to protect the rest of the body from the spread of sin. You notice here the, the danger in Corinth. Corinth was a, was a particularly wicked city. But the danger in Corinth was not a danger of influence or defilement from the community around them. The greater danger was a danger of influence or defilement from within the community. That Christians were not living out the midst of that new life that they should be, that they have been given in Christ. The body is much more threatened by inconsistency from within than defilement from without. Notice in, in verse 6, he said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. There's a proverbial phrase there. It just takes a little yeast to make the whole ball of dough rise up, right? A little influence will work its way through the whole thing. And that's true for negative influence. Could it also be true for positive influence? I think we should ask ourselves in light of that, a little leaven, if leaven works through the loaf. Who influences you? Who do you have around you that influences you one way or another? Another way to put that question is who do you influence and how? Who do you have an influence upon and is that influence being wasted? Are you passive about it? Are you intentionally seeking for an opportunity to, for somebody that's alongside you that you influence them for good? toward a closer walk with Christ rather than a, a tolerant indifference. See, one of the reasons we're, we're, we're tolerant of things around us, we're not going to judge, is because we're simply indifferent. We don't care enough. 
We must care. He said, they were, they were there. Maybe there was just that aloof, the, the intellectual aloofness that didn't care enough to confront and rebuke somebody when they needed it. I went back several years later to that same store. It was a Safeway. And I found that same guy. He was a stock boy at the time. I don't, I'm not sure what his job was, but he still worked at the same store. And I said, I don't know if you remember me, but thank you. you. Because you were willing to stop me and confront me and not let me get away with it, that changed my life. It changed my pattern of behavior right there, that way. Because you cared, you bothered to stop me and make a difference. Even though it was probably awkward and uncomfortable for him, this sniveling, bawling little kid, he didn't want to throw me in jail. And yet he did. The, the center of this passage is in verses 7 and 8. Why do we live a new life? Why can we live this unleavened life? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed. You see, that's why a tolerance of sin denies the gospel. And the expectation is that we would live in, we would live out the gospel, that Christ has given us new life. And to not live toward that, to not press into that, would be just like the Israelites, as if God had redeemed them out of Egypt to merely let them die in the desert. Remember Moses pleaded, oh God, don't even judge them too harshly here because the Egyptians will say. No, God led them out of Egypt, not merely to take them out of Egypt, not merely to get them out of Egypt and in the desert. God's intention all along was that they live with him, in fellowship with him, in that land of blessing and promise and purpose that he had provided. That there they would be a light to all the nations of the world as a people following their God together. That was God's purpose. And we know through the Old Testament how that begins to fall down as well. But, but that was the purpose, and that is our purpose. And we don't want to follow in, follow in, the, in the footsteps of the later New Testament and the, fall, and the failure, the, the, uh, the uh, Jonah mindset of failing to live out that mandate of, of the light of Christ in the midst of the world. We want to live in this new life, and we must help one another to do that. We must help and, and hold one another accountable. What does that look like? Well, first of all, this, this separation, as I, as I pointed out earlier, is not a separation from the immoral pagans. And I hope nobody's offended that I referred to anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus as a pagan. I'm not name-calling. It just, it's, it's, it's helpful at times to make a sharp contrast that you have been called different. You have been made different. And it's not a separation from those who don't know Christ. Uh, I, I, I put something here in my notes. I said, have Matthew parties, not Judas parties. What do I mean by that? Well, you remember Matthew, the tax collector? After Matthew becomes a follower of Christ, what does he do? He has a big party, and he gets all of his friends together. He says, man, come on, get together. And he invites Jesus and his disciples so that his friends can meet Jesus, right? He wants to share this Savior with them, okay? We had a pattern in our church in South Africa where we encourage people to hold Matthew parties. Invite all of your unsaved friends. Invite all of your friends that don't believe in Jesus. And then invite some carefully chosen, a few Christians. Too many Christians will spoil it because they will just gather and talk and be friendly among themselves and your purpose is to invite those Christians who are with you in this and they're going to be nice and friendly and, and get meet and get to know your friends 
and or neighbors and hopefully be looking for that opportunity when they could say something about the difference Christ has made in their life. They could share something of their testimony to Christ in the midst of this time of connection together with some of your unsaved friends. That's a Matthew party. That's what Matthew did. Now, Judas party, you can see the other side of it, right? Somebody who is, who is walking against the faith, somebody who's taken a stand in their own conduct and behavior, again, that, those are not the ones you invite to the party. So a Matthew party, not a Judas party. We separate from those who have professed the name of Christ and yet will not live and walk in his ways. We will not separate ourselves from those around us who need to hear the name of Christ from us. What does this look like, the separation? Well, the, the, it's... it's it's applicable to a whole range of sin. It's not just sexual sin. He talks about swindlers. He talks about the greedy. He talks about covetousness. So, so don't limit it to just certain things. We need to hold one, one another accountable for what we know to be true from God's word. To not even eat with such a one. What does that mean? Well, certainly it means the Lord's table. The cup and the bread that the, the church shares together as an affirmation of what we believe in Christ. When we come to that table, we take some time. We pause and reflect. And if there's anything in, in my heart that I know is against the Lord, I confess that so I can come to his table with a clean conscience, forgiven by Christ. Nothing hidden away in my heart that I'm holding back and unwilling to confess. Now, there's much about me that I don't know. But what I know, I willingly confess to him as sin. And we are in agreement together, and he cleanses me from all sin. And we come to that table together. This separation, not even to eat with such a one, would also include that family love feast or that church dinner that would precede the Lord's table. That was for believers. That was for the family of God together in this local church. And those who, who, by their actions, are stubbornly denying Christ are excluded from that. Now, what does that exclusion look, exclusion look like if, if you have other relationships? Maybe, maybe you, you have a family member. Maybe it's a, a, a father or a mother. Maybe it's a brother or sister. Maybe it's a, a child, grandchild, that has denied the faith or will not repent a particular sin that you've, you've confronted them, and you need this, to have this separation. But how do you do that when they're your family? Or you have other relationship with them in some way? Well, you may maintain some of that other relationship, but there needs to be some sort of difference that communicates that our spiritual relationship is not the same. We are not spiritually together like we were. You know, it's a wonderful thing even within a family. When those who are born brothers and sisters are born again brothers and sisters. And you share not only family ties, but spiritual bonds. But when those are strained, that needs to be expressed in some way. And I'm not going to try to define exactly what that looks like. It's going to look different one relationship to another. But in the midst of connection that we might still have, it needs to be evident that there is a spiritual separation. There is something in the way. And is that obstinate refusal to confess and have forgiven sin that I'm willfully living in. The model of what that looks like is found in Matthew 18. If you have something against your brother or sister, go to them individually. Don't make it a public case. Go to them individually. And if they hear you, you've won your brother. If they don't hear you, then take one or two witnesses so that, that by, by the mouth of, of, of two or three witnesses, every fact is confirmed. Now, when you take a witness to go and confront your brother or sister again, that doesn't mean that you go tell some other people about it so they can go with you. 
It means that you find others who also know the same thing. They see the same thing. They're aware of it independently from you. It's not just your perception of the thing. You're bringing witnesses who could substantiate. And hopefully, by a larger circle of voices, the individual will be convinced, and again, you will have won your brother or sister. And you will have gained them back into fellowship with you and also into fellowship with the Lord. If not, then then take it to the church, the church leaders. And ultimately, if they will not hear the church, then they're to be separated from the fellowship, as happened here, hopefully so that they can be restored. So the pattern of that is in Matthew 18. Now, I should give a a, a caution here. This is not a call to self-righteous, exclusivistic, um, um, uh, separating and uh, a a mindset of legalism that that chooses certain things that we're going to separate others away from us so that we remain pure and holy and righteous. That's That's not the purpose of this. The purpose of this is for restoration, for the good of one another, that we can, as iron sharpens iron, so one man will sharpen another, that we can be growing together, be accountable together, and there are simply limits to how far patience and forbearance and tolerance should reach. That man should not have tolerated my sin, and we should not tolerate sin that not only would damage the body, our fellowship together, but it would damage a person's and will continue to damage a person's relationship with Christ, potentially spread that damage to others as well. So we confront sin for the person's good, for the good of others in the church, for the good of the whole body and for the gospel's advance. You could be You could be God's protective grace to somebody. Think about that. So I don't want to be a self-righteous prig about something. You could be God's protective grace to somebody. But do it graciously. Do it mercifully. The book of Galatians chapter 6 talks about when you're restoring somebody else. Do that with a spirit of gentleness. Give a look to yourself lest you also be tempted. Realize I could be in the same place easily. And have that gracious mindset toward the other. And yet do not permit what should not be permitted. What do you allow yourself to get away with? How do you receive that potential confrontation from another? Are you willing to hear it that what somebody else has to say might actually be, in some sense, that prophetic word from God that you need to hear? That you need to hear, especially if you hear it from more than one, that you need to give, listen, quit protecting yourself and your own sense of self-righteousness or your own sense of entitlement to do whatever it is that you please to do. Are you willing to hear the correction of another? Because it may very well be that the Lord himself will speak to you through a fellow member of his body. We do not advance liberty by allowing or accepting sin. Sin brings bondage in a box marked freedom. Sin will bring you to bondage in a box marked freedom. Don't be deceived. Care enough about yourself to take a stand to live free. Care enough about those around you to take a stand for them as well, for their good, for our good together, for the good of the gospel. We must hold others accountable to the gospel. That's the first move. That's the biggest section in this three that I want to spend time on, that we must hold one another accountable for one another's good. 
But gospel accountability is not about someone, is, is about rather, gospel accountability is about someone giving themselves to the Lord. It is not about me advancing my own rights or my own agenda. That's what comes next in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As you turn over there, the next, and I think these three flow together. There is an ascent, there's a sense of there's no accountability. Then accountability becomes all about me and my rights and holding others accountable for my benefit and a lack of holding myself accountable. That's the, that, that's the connection of these three together. The first one was live and let live, a tolerance of sin that denies the gospel. The next is, I've got my rights. I've got my rights. How can they do that to me? It's an insistence on justice, maybe accountability, that denies the gospel. Can there be an insistence on justice that denies the gospel? Is that possible? How about my demand for justice or demanding my own justice can deny the gospel. It's not about me. It's about the Lord and for their good. So here in chapter 6, in verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, instead of going to that person, instead of bringing witnesses, instead of bringing it to the church, what do you do? You You take them to court. One of you has a grievance against another. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try even smaller cases? The world is going to be judged by you. Not only the world, but do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than the matters pertaining to this life. So if you have such a case, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Those who don't know God's grace and mercy, those who don't know God's standard of righteousness or rather must rely on their own. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? So the brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Could it be that Christians were using intricacies of the law even to wrong or defraud one another within these courts because there is the opportunity within our imperfect legal system certainly to do that i've got my rights and i'm going to pursue my rights to the full extent i can't i don't care who i run over in the process i'm going to hold them accountable if we fail to judge ourselves we leave it to unbelievers to judge among us. You see how this ties back with the first one. If we fail to judge ourselves, we leave it to others to judge us apart from a knowledge of God. He declares that they should be able to judge themselves. Verses 2 and 3. We should be able to sort out, adjudicate grievances among ourselves. We have an eternal eschatological and end times there is a future where God is going going to use his church to exercise judgment over creation. We step into that if we can apply God's justice and his grace and his mercy. Remember, the psalmist says, in your wrath, remember mercy. That's God's justice. God's justice says that none is excused and then inserts his own son to pay the bill in full. That's a little different than what happens in a court. I remember a time I stood in a court. It was because I didn't have a clamming license. I'm not going to go into the whole 
story because I'd probably try to excuse myself again, and that's really not helpful. It didn't help me there. And uh, I, 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 I was made to understand that as, as, um, as uh, valid as it seemed, the court is simply not a place for mercy. Mercy doesn't happen in a court of law. That's not the place for it. There are no categories for mercy. There are only categories for justice there. He says that you're going to be adjudicating. You should be able to answer these things among yourselves. Why would you take their lawsuits before unbelievers who don't know God's justice, who don't know God's grace? You see, I want forbearance. I want mercy for me, but nothing but justice for the scoundrel who wronged me. And so then I will take out into the public arena this display of how Christians cannot solve things among themselves. He says, why not rather be wronged? Is that valid? Should we so set ourselves up to be taken advantage of? Well, the answer would be our Lord did. When we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. You see, he was wronged for us, not when, not at the moment that we believed in him. He was wronged for us while we still ridiculed and scorned him. That's when he was wronged for us. That's when he bore God's wrath in our place. Why not rather be wronged? Could it be that that even willingness to be wronged or be defrauded by another, that that demonstration of what Christ himself bore for us, that that will work its own good? That living in the gospel at a cost to myself, even as it costs the Savior, to, to live in it when it costs me something, that that will display to the individual who's wronging me. The individual who would take advantage of me, that says something to them about Christ, if they know him. Maybe it displays something of Christ to those who don't know him. But anyway, Paul says, it's better to be wrong. Win or lose, the church is lost because the gospel has lost. In verse 7, Christians should exchange their pursuit of advantage with a willingness to sacrifice for others. Rather be wrong. How can I do that? Well, like Christ, I'm willing to entrust myself to God and to the Lord's return. Remember Jesus on the cross? His last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We sang that song earlier, there is a higher throne. There is a higher throne. There is a higher court. I think I told you the story. There's a court above the, strip, above the United States Supreme Court. There's a basketball court actually above the ceiling of the U.S. Supreme Court. Didn't know about that until I visited there. I didn't get to play ball on it, but the court is there. There's a higher court than that, isn't there? There is a higher court, and that higher court is where the, where the God of heaven sits. And I can wait for the sun's return. I can wait to when justice prevails. I can wait until all that's wrong has been made right. I can wait until my God himself will vindicate me. Imagine. Do you think God is going to let you hold his debt? Do you think God is going to let you walk around eternity with a receipt in your pocket that hasn't been reimbursed? No. 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 God will vindicate it. God will make it right. He will owe none of us anything. He will make all that's wrong right. He will vindicate us and all the more that I can trust what wrongs might come to me to him. Last of all, I've got my rights, but I can trust them to God. Last of all, you only live once. You only live once. Why not do whatever it is you please. If it's not expressly wrong, if it wouldn't fall into chapter 5, if it's not expressly wrong, then why can't I do it? 
Why not? After all, all things are lawful for me, right? All things are allowable, right? We're not under law, but we're under grace, right? Well, he says all things are lawful, verse 12, but not all things are profitable. Now, we have graduates this morning. There was a whole string of them there. I wanted to give you a handful of suggestions how you can know what you should do. You've got plans. We're going to have an EMT. We're going to have engineers, software engineers. We're going to have uh, Ryan's looking for a job anywhere. He's not so fussy. I think it should probably, he'd like it to have something to do with his Clark College, but he's, he's not, but there are plans and ambitions and dreams in the room, right? How do you know what you should do? Here we go. Not all things are profitable, verse 12 says. Is it helpful? Could you decide, instead of asking, well, is it allowable? Is it okay if a Christian does it? How about if you, if you ask the question, would this be helpful? Would this be profitable? Is, there, is this going to be fruit-bearing in my life or the life of another? Determine if you should do the thing based on that. How about verse 12 uh, uh, B, the second half? All things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved or mastered by anything. Is this some activity that is going to entangle me? Some of you are perhaps a little obsessive compulsive, which means you're a little obsessive compulsive, which you, know, you, you, you tend to, to keep after things. You can't let go of the thing. And I'm kind of like that with TV. TV grabs me by both ears. Movies, it doesn't matter. It can be something stupid. But if I sit down and face my ears toward the thing, it reaches out the box. I don't know how the arms do that, but the arms come right out of the box and they just grab me right there and hold me. So I should try to keep myself away from the couch. The couch is a dangerous place for Bob. Not that couches are sinful and not that TV is necessarily bad. Oh, well, a lot of it is, but that's, that's, that's probably another conversation or somewhere else on this list. But, but the fact that for uh, each of us there are certain kinds of compulsive behaviors that we can get stuck in. And you, know, you might know what some of yours are. And so while you could, the question is, is this something I should? Will it grab hold of me? Will it get its hooks into me? A little later on in Corinthians, we're going to ask the question about will it get its hooks in somebody else if I do it? But that's, that's for another time. Verse 13, well, the stomach is made for food and food for the stomach, right? The body has certain appetites, so why don't we just fulfill them? It's only the body, it's only physical, it's only fleshly, it's only temporary. Why not just do whatever I want? If it feels good, do it. But verse 13 says, well, yes, the body is made for food and food for the body. But the body is not made for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord, the body, and God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. This body is made for more than the present reality. This body is not made just for, to fulfill its appetites in the present. This body is made for the future. Can I say about this thing that I want to do, can I say God made me to do that? God made me to do this. Can I say that? Or is this just something I want to do? This is something I want to indulge in. If I can say, God made me to do this, this glorifies the God who made me, if I do this, then go for it. Verse 15. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? You see, you take this physical pleasure to the extreme thing, and you could give yourself allowance for all kinds of things. And he says, shall I... 
can I take the members of Christ and participate in this thing or that thing? He takes that to an extreme example. Can I take Jesus with me to do this? The thing that you're thinking of doing, can I take Jesus there? The thing that you want to sit down and watch, I talked about TV or movies or whatever it is. Can I, can I bring Jesus? Hey, Jesus, come on over. Let's watch this. Let's play this video game together. Are you comfortable with that? Because spiritually, that's where we are. We are members of his body, and even as Paul participated with them by distance, so the Lord of glory participates with his body in all that we do. Number six, verse 16 and 17. Again, he uses the example of if a, if a person were to, were to participate with a, a prostitute. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Does God's word say something about this? This thing that I want to do, this thing that I'm thinking about doing, what I might participate in, does God's word say something about it? God's word says something about this. God's word says something about not visiting a prostitute, as, as is described there. Because, and, and he applies it, well, I'm not marrying the woman. No, but the one you join yourself to, the two become one flesh. And so there's a grievous, there's a greater sin here. He says this sin is more serious than others because you're taking what already belongs to the Lord and giving that belonging, joining that that you have been made a part of Christ, joining that to another who is not. Taking what belongs to Christ and using it or giving it another way. Giving away what, what belongs to Christ. He says, flee sexual immorality, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. There is, I should, I, I, I should pause here just to, just to say that there are certain kinds of sin that A, saturate our present culture, and B, have a particular easy grab upon us. There, they are, there, there are sins that get to the very core of our being in ways that even cause us to, to find our fulfillment, our, our satisfaction in something other than God. He says, flee sexual immorality. Other sins are not the same as this as the hold that it gets upon you and the way that you join yourself in bodily ownership to another. What, one of the things this means that contrary to what our culture says, there is no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as casual sex. There's a joining that occurs there. It's kind of, the best illustration I heard of this was imagine it's winter in Minnesota. And you're one of those kids on the playground, and somebody dares you, and you stick your tongue to the monkey bars. Okay? There you are. Now walk away. Walk away. You can walk away. You can pull yourself away, but you will leave something of yourself behind. It will cost you something. And if you do it again... And again, you will leave something of yourself behind over and over again. 
It will cost more than we realize when we accepted the dare or the invitation in the first time. Flee sexual immorality. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. Would doing this contradict Christ's ownership of me? And in that temple mindset, also verse 20, glorify God in your body. Will doing this glorify God? It's not about me. My, my life as temple, that my body is the temple of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God dwells in me, that what I do now, I present my body as a means of worshiping God. How I use these hands, how I use these lips, where I walk with these feet, this is worship. Your work tomorrow will be worship. How you conduct yourself in your home this afternoon will be your spiritual service of worship. Worship is not compartmentalized into the church on Sunday morning. Worship is what we do in our bodies in the midst of life. Our bodies are temple. In life is where we worship. Can this thing, is this something I simply want to indulge myself in, or is this a way that I can worship? You only live once is not true. For those of you who are born again in Christ, you do not only live once, you live forever, and it's already started. What you do matters. Take care in what you do and care for others around you because what each one of us do matters for the sake of us individually, for the sake of us the whole. There's chapter 5. When you're wronged, especially, well, pursue right, but especially trust God in making it right. You do not have to push for your own rights. God has got you in his own hand. When wrong, trust God to make it right and live today like it does matter for eternity because eternity for you and I has already started. John Piper coined the phrase, the Christian hedonist. And when, he, and when Piper coins the phrase Christian hedonist, he did not mean somebody who's a Christian but still pursues pleasure in any way that they want. He, he coined that phrase suggesting that we pursue our pleasure, our fulfillment in God's purposes for us. God's purpose is that we find our greatest pleasure our greatest fulfillment, our greatest purpose in Christ, not in any other cheap substitution. To borrow Paul's analogy in the end of chapter 6, to find our fulfillment in anything other than Christ is like a man thinking a prostitute can take the place of a wife. Even though there's no commitment or camaraderie, there's no true affection or desire, there's no devotion, only a fleeting deception, which comes at great price, far greater price than he thinks he has paid. Piper says, passionately pursue your greatest desires in relationship to Christ. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Did you get that? You alone can satisfy. And God is most glorified in my life, lived as temple, when I am most satisfied in him rather than any other way I might try to self-medicate. It's based on new life, that Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Because Christ was sacrificed for us, we can extend mercy toward others. Because in Jesus I have been washed, I have been sanctified, I have been justified, chapter 6. That's why I can forego passing pleasure for what matters more. I've been bought with a price. All through this chapter, you see why, why, I, will not, why I will not live and let live? Because 
Christ was sacrificed for me. Why I will not insist on my own rights because Christ has washed me and justified me. Why I will not buy the lie that I only live once is because I have been bought with a price and I will glorify God with my body into eternity. Now you might want to know more about that life, that Christ sacrifice for us. We'd love to share with you more about that on, on, on an individual basis. Somebody that you came with would love to talk with you further. Somebody that you know here, one of our leaders at the close of the service right over here on the side would love to pray with you or pray with you for somebody that you want to share his life with or help. How can I reconcile? How can I hold accountable in a way that will press toward the gospel lived out together? Would you join me in prayer? Father, there's much in the passages before us this morning. There's much that, that would perhaps condemn us, would call us into account for being far too tolerant of what we should not tolerate. Lord, perhaps being far too insistent on our own rights instead of the needs of others. Perhaps, Lord, we've been uh, too careless in how we could live in ways that glorify you. Lord, none of this is based on our own sense of righteousness. All of this is based on what Christ has done for us. Lord, would you indeed help us? Lord, stir our hearts toward that satisfaction that is found in Christ, that we would indeed be delivered by things. Lord, there are folks here this morning that are worried that someone would confront them because of something that they know is within them. Oh, Lord, would you uh, free those hearts that are set by, that are oppressed by sin, weighed down by habits that have held for too long. Lord, would you give us even that freedom in the, in the trustworthy confidence of another fellow believer, someone that we could walk with and be strengthened by for your glory. Lord, we want to present not merely our gifts in this offering that we now receive. Lord, we want to present our lives to you. We want to present ourselves as an offering that is holy, not because we are holy in ourselves, but is acceptable because of Jesus our Savior who has washed us and who is transforming us. Oh, Lord, do your changing work among this body that we would be so different, so curiously different, that we would show and tell the gospel to the people around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We were purchased with a price.